This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank, the International Leaders Summit. I am Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. You can subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. We thank you for tuning in to America's Roundtable. This week on America's Roundtable, we are truly honored to have as our special guest a leading principal voice and distinguished scholar, Dr. David Azrad. David Azrad is an assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in Washington, D.C. His research and writing focuses on classical liberalism, conservative political thought, and identity politics. Prior to joining Hillsdale, Azrad was the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics of the Heritage Foundation. He has taught previously at American University and the University of Dallas. A warm welcome to you, David. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. David, on this 4th of July weekend, America's citizens are celebrating the nation's founding. And 244 years ago, America's founding generation gathered in sweltering Philadelphia and stood together to defy one of the world's most formidable empires, Britain. And in Philadelphia, the Second Continental Congress approved a resolution to declare independence from Britain. David, in one of your important writings on the founding documents, And let me share this with you. I quote, The Declaration of Independence contains the clearest, most concise, and most eloquent articulation of the American creed, a political definition of man in two axioms and three corollary propositions on government, unquote. David, can you take us back in time to this setting leading to the 2nd of July, 1776 in Philadelphia, and help us understand why these ordinary yet brave individuals signed a document which in effect was a death sentence. And can you kindly elaborate on this statement, the significance of the American creed? Yeah, uh, you know, if you want it to be a pedantic stickler for detail, America's birthday is actually July 2nd and not July 4th, because that is the day that the Continental Congress approved the actual Declaration of Independence. It's two sentences long. But then why did they redeclare independence two days later on July 4th and issue the Declaration of Independence we all know and read? Because they wanted to give a justification and an argument for independence. It wasn't just an assertion of will or a fiat. And what you get in the July 4th Declaration is the American creed, the axioms of a free society, the self-evident truths on which the argument for independence is built. And then in the final paragraph of the July 4th Declaration of Independence, the July 2nd formal declaration reappears. But it appears as the culmination of that argument. And I think it is rightful that in America we celebrate July 4th and not 2nd as our birthday because America is not just an idea. I think it's a mistake to reduce it to an idea and to suggest that it's as if it's not a real country with a land, a people, a past. But these things that all countries have, America also has something else, namely this ideas component, the creed component that is intertwined with the history. 
And the articulation is given on the 4th, and I think that's why we rightfully celebrate the 4th as our day of independence. David, in one of your pieces you write, I quote, it does, however, acknowledge and point to the highest things, the reasons why it's so important to resist tyranny and oppression. Uh, you refer to the invocation of our Creator, the laws of nature and of God's and nature's God, uh, and the supreme judge of the world. Uh, could you kindly elaborate on this important statement about politics and the creation of conditions that allow this comprehensive human good? The founders are operating, broadly speaking, within the early modern classical liberal tradition, which means that they are breaking with the ancients and the medievals, who had much higher aims for politics. And one of the unjust slanders that is leveled at the founders is that while they did away with the comprehensive human good, they don't talk about the soul and the cultivation of comprehensive virtue as being the, the function of the state. And they gave us this base government that was just about acquisition and individualism. That is not true. The founders' argument is that we disagree about the highest things, especially in a religiously pluralist society. And if we make government about the highest things, that is setting the conditions for civil war and religious warfare, which is what had been the case in Europe in the decades and centuries leading up to this moment. And so we are going to agree to disagree about the highest things as citizens. We can all agree on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we allow citizens to pursue happiness as they see fit within limits, of course. So the founders were not libertarians who thought that you could do whatever you want so long as you're not aggressing your neighbor. I mean, they clearly had strong moral legislation. Uh, they were very keen on promoting non-sectarian religion. So you see these references to God in the Declaration of Independence that you mentioned, Joel. They're non-sectarian. Both you know, a Baptist, a Catholic, and a Jew, for that matter, could all agree that there's a God that... Uh, he's just, and we can agree on this civic theology, and then in our private lives, in civil society, we go off to our different churches and different synagogues. So it's actually quite a brilliant compromise to allow uh, pluralism not to result in conflict. Uh, David, uh, how should we apply these timeless documents of Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to the present times in, in particular cases, and as you mentioned in one of your pieces, uh, we do expect the judiciary to be independent and military to be subordinated to civil power, as examples. In today's world, how do we make sure that these institutions remain free from political interference? The difficulty with uh, your, the question you pose, which is a fair question, is just that in the ensuing two and a half centuries since the founding, we have had a series of regime changes in America, you know, pretty serious reconfigurations of how government operates, of the ruling ideals in society, of what we teach our students. That means that we're no longer really living in the founders' regime. To some extent, we are, but you know, the government we have in America today is unmoored from the Constitution. I mean, not 
explicitly so, but, you know, no plausible reading of the Constitution could justify the kind of government we have. So the difficulty for citizens today is to find a way to incrementally, prudentially rebuild constitutional government to shore up what is left of the founders' regime and to push back against the worst excesses of those who want to continue down the path of further revolutionary transformations of America. So one way in which I think the principles of the Declaration of Independence speak powerfully to the majority of Americans is their colorblindness. Now, this is, of course, not what everyone is taught. Everyone is falsely taught that the founders were all racist and that when they said all men are created equal, they meant all white men and that the Constitution said that a black person is worth three-fifths of a white person. All of this is nonsense. Nowhere in the Declaration or in the Constitution are people classified by race and, might I add, by religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, you name it. Our founding principles are most emphatically colorblind. Our practices regrettably have not been in the past because of the terrible mistreatment of black Americans. And today, because we are seeing slowly being built up a regime that is anti-white. I know this sounds a bit crazy. It's clearly not the same thing that we've had in the past. But you see a mounting prejudice, for example, with the Black Lives Matter movement in the academy amongst the elites to try to demonize the white part of the country. And I think that all Amer- the majority of Americans of all skin colors would reject that and say that this is not the promise of America. The promise of America is equal rights for all under equal laws. David, because individuals possess rights by nature, a government derives its just power from the consent of the governed. So the purpose of the government is to secure these fundamental rights. I w- we would also like to hear your commentary on lobbying in Washington, D.C., by powerful sectors of economy, such as healthcare, which represents one-sixth of the U.S. economy. This lobbying interferes with the consent of the governed. How would you reconcile Founding Fathers' principle with this anomaly, which uh, just recently in our interview with former Congressman David Brad, he called it uh, crony capitalism? I mean, I, I wouldn't. I go back to, I mean, first of all, let me say that lobbying in and of itself is not wrong. I mean, it's perfectly fine in a republic, in a democracy, to have groups of uh, citizens who have a common interest to mobilize and petition the government to advance their interests, so long as they're not doing so at the expense of the common good, so long as they're doing so with a view to securing their best interests in a way that is compatible with the good of the country. So, lobbying in and of itself is not inherently wrong. It goes without saying that a lot of the lobbying that takes place in D.C. is for carve-outs, for preferential treatment, for a slice of the pie. But that I view more as a reflection of the deeper problem that the state has metastasized and now is involved in every nook and cranny of American life is disbursing obscene sums of money each year, and therefore it's attracting the lobbyists who want a slice of the pie. 
But the deeper problem would be, how did we get to the government doing all of these things? And this goes back to the fact that through the New Deal, the Great Society, and the various waves of progressive transformation of the government, which, by the way, have been both Democrats and Republicans have been complicit in. I mean, more often than not, it has been initiated by the Democrats. But the Republicans, if you look at the 20th century with, you know, the potential exception of Reagan, have not really made a concerted effort to scale back the government. And so we just have, like I said, a government that is no longer really anchored in the Constitution. If we were to interpret the consent of the governed, as you say, lobbying is not inherently bad, but if elected officials, which are government, who are legislating in favor of certain groups to the detriment of the governed, then we do have a, a problem, basically. Yeah, I mean, we also have, uh, I, this is not my expertise, but I mean, we have a lot of uh, laws against corruption. In Washington, you can't give money to congressmen. You're very restricted in the kind of gifts you can give them. David is one of our final questions, actually. Natasha, you and I have uh, had the privilege and have been blessed to travel to other countries and spending time in other places. When you look at other countries in comparison to America, and specifically America's founding documents, what is so unique about these timeless documents, its connection to uh, key events such as the uh, the Magna Carta, and um, how it truly transformed a place now we call the United States of America. I mean, the American founding is one of those extraordinary moments in, in human history where this ragtag bunch of colonials uh, take on the formidable British monarch and have the temerity to do so not simply, I mean, clearly they are only fighting for their own independence, but they proclaim a set of truths. Uh, remember, the Declaration of Independence is addressed to all of mankind. They say that they have a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. And so they're clearly not saying we're going to spend the rest of our lives at war to bring democracy to every last corner of the world. That would be foolish and completely incompatible with the principles of the founding. But they have the temerity to affirm this idea that all human beings, and all men really does mean all men, uh, are created equal, that they possess rights, and that the only just title of government is the consent of the governed, and that the government should secure the rights of its citizens. And, and the U.S. goes on to have uh, experience extraordinary growth in the 19th and, and 20th century and to emerge from the Cold War as the world's only superpower. And, and it has, uh, you know, when the history of the world is written, there will be a chapter about Greece, there will be a chapter about Rome, and undoubtedly there will be a chapter about America. And on this very positive note, we truly thank you, Dr. David Azarad, for joining us on America's Roundtable. And we would like to encourage our listeners in Michigan, the Midwest, and through podcasts uh, to check David Azrad's videos on YouTube. It's a it's instructional. It's informational. Please visit 
these different platforms and learn more about what Dr. David Azrad has to say on the founding documents and about America's unique exceptionalism. Thank you, David, for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, David. My pleasure. Happy Fourth. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. is an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit. I'm Joel Anansami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit.